Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. So, welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Do you want to give us a quick introduction? Yeah, my name is Jackie Rigby. Uh, I've been working in transformation in its broadest sense for the last 20 years, 15 years at exec level. Uh, the last six years, six and a half years, I've been doing my own thing, working on an interim and consultancy basis, which I love. Uh, and the sorts of challenges I, I really enjoy are the big challenging questions like, attract a new consumer audience to the business, please, um, and take us on our digital journey, which brings together process, people, technology, and culture. Um, And that's my sweet spot, working across everything. I know enough about tech to hold a conversation, but I'm not a techie. Tech's a great enabler. Um, I always start with the customer, and that's that's how I I, uh, work with, with our businesses. Um, So so the first question we always ask is, is, what does the digital workspace mean to you? To me, it's it's a great collaborative space, um, and it's something that I really I really love. That's why I've started talking to you and doing this podcast. You know, it's a great way to share knowledge, to work as a community, to uh, get information, ideas, um, and I, and I think particularly in today's world, people are benefiting from that community feel and that community energy that that, that we're all providing. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that um, it's humanized things a lot. Yeah. We've got very robotic and very, um, not so much results driven, but like, you know, busy, busy, busy. You've got mm-hmm. so much to do. So many, you know, and, you, and, you, and with the commute and all that kind of stuff, you you can't see on this hamster wheel. And I think we've all had that opportunity to, to slow down a bit because um, you've got time back and, and your time is precious. I was just going to say, I think, uh, I think actually just to focus back on people again, is great. You know, we've all realized that, that we've probably, as you say, been on the hamster wheel and focused on, you know, our personal careers and our own agendas. And it's really nice to actually see so many people collaborating and helping each other again. I think it's it's coming back into into more mainstream activity, which which is only positive because, you know, you learn so much from other people. You know, you don't know everything yourself. You learn so much from other people and it's great to help other people out. No, definitely. Definitely. Um, I was just going to say, I really enjoyed going through your your show notes. Um, you were one of the first first really prepared guests that I've had where I've, where I've actually got stuff to read. I mean, don't get me wrong, people do fill out the questionnaire and they put in the bullet points, but that, you know, they have a whole separate document full of notes. Um, it was really with pictures and everything. So, so I think we, with your permission, we'll share some of these. Because um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a good summary of some of these things, specifically Agile, which I think yeah. Yeah, is a really bastardized, overused term. Um, do you want to maybe talk a bit about that? And, and... Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's, it's a shame, really. I mean, the principles are really sound. And I think, you know, you, when you realize it was only 2001 when the when the Agile Manifesto came out, it feels like it's been with us forever. Um, and it's, it's sort of done some good, but it's also done some bad because I think what's happened is that the terminology frightens people. So certainly my experience is, you know, your your C-suite and your leadership team who have perhaps not worked with Agile and they've always worked with Waterfall. If you start using Agile terminology, then it's something that, that just is foreign um, and that doesn't work particularly well. And I think sometimes we've hidden behind some of that terminology as a, uh, a badge um, rather than actually thinking about the outcomes. So I'm really keen to to stop using terminology, particularly outside those that um, that understand it, and really focus on why why agility is important. You know the benefits you can get from agility are enormous. McKinsey did a report back in March this year where they looked at 22 companies across six sectors, and the hard benefits from um, employing business agility are just phenomenal. You know both financial performance, employee engagement, customer satisfaction. You know, reducing errors, improving safety. I mean, it's real tangible stuff. We don't talk about that. We talk about scrums and kanbans and backlogs. We don't talk about the fact that actually there's huge financial and customer and employee benefits from Agile. And I think it's time to switch that conversation around and help help businesses actually 
move forward using agility in a way that is important to them rather than focusing on on techie techie language yeah you're so right i mean i um i've just recently recently finished reading a book called the goal i don't know if you've read the goal no uh, and it's it's a really good way to to talk about almost the, not the fundamentals well it, 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 it is the fundamentals but but talk about it in a, in a different way so that you actually don't even know you're talking about what agile as a concept and, and as, a, as an ethos is trying to deliver on which is things like getting your sequencing right um the size of your workload you know your batches and that uh, and and the guy who wrote is an israeli american i think who goes through this this journey of a factory manager who's following all the standard practices and all the correct, you know, the, the best practice that he's been told from, from higher up down, this is how you have to do it. And, and he, he gets a mentor. I don't want to give the whole story away because I think it's worth reading. Um, and I think there's a graphic novel as well for people that want the short, the really short version. Um, but he goes through this journey and he turns the factory around, but doing things counterintuitively to how things have always been done. Um, and he uses examples in the story. You know, he's telling the story of this factory owner who's having trouble with his wife and with his kids, and you know, he's sort of turned the factory around. He's been given a short timeline to to do it. You know, otherwise the factory will close. You know, all that 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 sort of you know, it's a really well written fictional story, but underpinned by this factual stuff. And you know, whenever you read a book, sometimes you have to read it again at a different time in your life because then the things apply. And it, and reading it again now at the mo- moment we're redoing our product. Um, all those things are starting to make sense again because now you're thinking about, oh, yeah, you know, we, 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 even though it's agile and, and it really is, you know, two-week sprints, people forget that those two-week sprints have to belong to a strategic goal. Yeah. And that's what often gets confused or, or, or lost. And people, I mean, I remember sitting with one exec saying, don't ever say two weeks to me again. Yeah. It's never two weeks. And I go, you're missing the point. It's not about two weeks. It's about we've got a packet of work that will be done in a short period of time so you can see something. It's not the, not the whole thing built in two weeks. Yeah. And that's, I think, a, a common mis, misunderstanding. Yeah, I think I think it is really difficult if you think that, you know, lots of people have, have been brought up with that more classic project terminology and project approaches where, you know, and we've got this sort of these two extremes of, of you know, a, a two-year, five-year roadmap on one hand and then two-week sprints on the other. And actually, you know, the truth is that Agile is is in between the two. But but actually, as you say, sometimes it gets sucked into the it's it's two weeks and, and the classic Dilbert cartoons of, of actually Agile just means that you do the same thing but faster. You know, it's uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's quite it's quite interesting how it needs to grow up beyond its initial sort of young stage of development and as you say that those two week sprints and the words like backlog and managing expectations between people who have only walked, worked in waterfall and still want those financial outcomes um, and are still in the world where you write requirements and then you, you do it that way versus the uh, the way agile can be done badly which is actually we just do what we like for two weeks and then we do something else that we like for two weeks and so on and so forth <laughs> That sounds so familiar. Um, <laughs> well, I, well, I think it's I think it's what you that keyword expectations. So, yeah. so sitting with 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 the business and and because I say the business because I'm usually on the delivery side, yeah. and you're dealing with with the people that want something, and you're trying to explain not only and you've got to break these down into very small things if you can get them. Um, one, you're trying to explain the methodology, but in the same token, you're trying to explain that we do these things on an iterative basis, which means you're not going to get the Rolls Royce that you wanted. You might get the VW Beetle that you yeah. need um, that will improve over time and stretch it and mold it into your Rolls Royce, but it could take us, you know, 10 years. And no one really likes to hear that it could take longer than mm-hmm. than, than they wanted to take. Um you mentioned um, the jargon and that. I mean, how do you get around the jargon? How do you explain it to people? I mean, what's your method or approach? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I think um, where where it works best of all is where the jargon that is typically agile is not used. And actually, it comes back to culture. I mean, I'm a great I'm a great believer in culture. I mean, culture is an outcome of, of actions, values, behaviours. It's not a it's not something that it doesn't start with culture. It ends with culture. But actually, if you create your own, you know, your own north star, your own vision as a business, 
and you create your own language that then supports agile ways of working without using those terminology, that's where it seems to work best. I mean, you know, that's that's even how the, the big tech firms have done it, that they don't tend to use agile terminology. They create their own language that means something to them, like Amazon. And, and if you go, well, if, if the tech boys are doing it and they're doing it really well, and their customer focus, and that's how they're driving their business. Then you know maybe maybe that is a better way to do it. Um, stop stop trying to 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 use the terminology that's been established through Agile and create your own business terminology that links to a defined north star, a defined purpose for that business that everyone can buy into. It's a language that everyone understands. So it's a, it, it is a journey to go on. It's not a quick fix. And trying for me trying to force Agile terminology and um, sort of strict ways of working into, into most businesses just tends to fail. And that's why people go, Agile's not for us. You mm. know, let's stop it. Let's, uh, you know, it's not right. We need to go back to projects because actually it, it's gone in a, in a way that just creates too much friction, too much tension. So you almost got to have practitioners who can use the approach, but not call it that and actually work with the business to to define that North Star and define the way that actually that business is going to to, to uh, respond, to iterate and work through an uncertain world. Yeah, because I quite like you got in your in your, in your preparation, the Agile principles in plain English. Yeah. You know, yeah. Which, which we all understand, we all know it's iterative, but, but you haven't mentioned the word iterative here once. Um, you've talked about change, you've talked about, oh, sorry, you did use iterate. Yeah, test, yeah test, 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 iterate, learn, yeah. Short cycles, customer co-creation, and I think that's such a valuable yeah. step, which I think usually those projects fail because the customers aren't, they almost, go back to, and, I, and I'm saying this very generally, but they almost used to IT running a long project and they only have to be involved in it at the, at the steer co or the, the, the yeah. project you know, meeting, not the every day we need to go through this component with you. How's this going to work um, as you're building out this towards that vision, but the building the, the nitty gritty. Yeah. Um, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for, for me working, doing the customer creation, I, I, I have found the, one of the most exciting aspects, you know, in my, in my recent career, actually starting the blank sheet of paper, coming up with some ideas through it through a sprint process and researching it, you know, doing actually getting you know, consumers into, into a laboratory environment and not just writing down, listening to what they say, but looking at the body language, the way they're scrolling through things, mm. you know, it tells you so much to actually watch somebody see your, your sort of, uh, your non-working, sort of a version of, of your first idea. It's it's amazing. You just it, it's it's just so powerful. Yeah. And see you know and seeing the reactions positive and negative. Um that that's you know that takes you out of we're doing things because the business need it and it actually goes, this is what customers need. This is the problem that we're solving for them. Are we solving is it an important problem for them? Are we solving it effectively? And that's and there's some there's massive subtleties in that. You know that the content, you know, the layout, the imagery, you know, the journey. I mean, it's just and it and it never ends because actually you know, consumers develop over time anyway. So that that's a brilliant way to to work with customers. And if you solve their problem, then you're going to sell them stuff, and they're going to recommend you. If you solve a business problem, then you might not solve their problem, which means that, mm. that actually it doesn't work. So that outside in rather than inside out thinking, I think is a great principle of, of that, that comes from Agile. And uh, I really enjoy the customer, the, the customer research, the UX. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I was thinking about something that I, as you were saying this, um, was talking about how th this company keeps, I can't remember where I heard the story, but they keep bringing in consultants to solve the business problem. <laughs> and, and they come back every year with the same, you know, with, with another solution to solve the problem, but the problem still persists. Yeah. And, and they brought this guy, another guy in who spent, you know, an hour listening to all this stuff. And he said, you know why you can't solve this problem to the CEO? And the CEO said, why? He said, well, the people that, that are part of the decision body to solve this problem don't want to solve the problem because they're personally benefiting from having the problem. So they're never going to solve the problem. Until you solve that they will get their, you know, their, their whatever their, their personal emotional drivers are, 
this problem will always be there. And they figured that out and then they changed the they changed it and they finally got the problem solved. But you know, ten years later and however many millions of consultants to tell them what they already knew. Um, only that it was a it was a human problem, not a not a business problem. Yeah, that's, that's that's fascinating. I think that probably happens, you know, more often than than, than you realise. Really, I think, uh, like you say, you know, personal, you know, personal emotions and and also personal the, the way that that people might benefit from a certain situation financially. You know, that's that's just the way the world works, isn't it? Um, but also, I think there's also a sense of historically that that leadership historically has been very top down. It's been, you know, the people at the top are supposed to know all the answers. They're supposed to define all the solutions. And actually, if you flip it around and you put the customer at the top of the triangle and actually go, well, let's be led by the customer, then business, a lot of businesses say they do that, but actually they don't. It's, 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 a, it's a belief system that actually is quite hard to undo. Um, and actually flipping it around and be, being led by the customer will give you the, it will give you the better outcomes, but it's harder for, um, for, for, for leadership that's, that's maybe been brought up where, where actually it's important to be right at the top rather than listen to the customer. Mm. And I think, yeah, and, I, and I've seen that with some products. It, it, it's, it's, in some senses, you're not, and I think your word led is, is, is a good word as opposed to be told by the customer. So the customer needs to tell you what they want, but you need to listen to all of them and figure out what they're all asking for. Yeah. Underneath that, sometimes, yeah. sometimes yeah. The, the underlying thing, not the yeah, yeah, that, and, and it's a good way to go. Um, I mean, that's a hard thing for people to get sometimes. I think. No, I, I'd, I'd agree. You know, it's uh, you know, I, I started my life in in market research, and I guess it's already st- always stuck with me is that you ask a direct question, then you'll quite often not get an answer that's useful. You know yeah. the way the way that you do your your research, and whether that be classic market research or whether that be you know more more modern UX research, um, it's really important not to ask a direct question, expect a direct answer that's going to actually be be the nirvana. And still, yeah. too many people think that's the case. You know, we're, we're way too complex for that. Our attitudes and behaviours and our feelings are uh, a lot more subtle than that, and it's sometimes difficult for us to articulate it. So. You need really good quality um, people who can actually set up the, that research and ask questions in the right way. And as I said, you know, watching body language uh, is is massive because that's that's more of a giveaway than what they're saying out their mouths. Are you looking at so? I mean, there's there's, there's websites like usertesting.com, for example, where you know with a software product you can put up your pages there and people can come and. and review it and click on it you can use prototyping tools so are you, are you talking about from that point of view as well or yeah more more, more from more from when you actually when you actually um you've, you've built a prototype or a, or a half working prototype and some of it you know it doesn't have to be fully functional by any means um and you get people in a in a in a lab setting and you know you are you've got a structured questionnaire yeah. But you're, but you're, and you're, there's things you want to try and get out of it. But you are not, you're not just looking at um, where they're clicking, or where their where the heat map is of their eyes, or what they're saying. But you're actually watching the body language that's that's happening at that time. And I think that qualitative research combined with the more um, measurable sort of direct research, the combination I think is really powerful. But I would never, for me, I would never just look at, at the things that are uh, automated tools because the value of human understanding of human language and body language and tone is is really important to add into the mix. And that helps you get under the skin of people. Yeah, I mean, I could see it in, in sort of pre-COVID times, we can get people into a building easily how that would work. But nowadays we have to sort of do it a different way. No, and then this, this user testing.com is, is humans doing the testing. It's not. Yes. It's not, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, like I say, you know, you can, you can set it up. So you, I mean, I, I would, you know, th- there's much more, it's a good job we have got tech really, because, because at least we can do that, uh, that user testing remotely, um, uh, which is, which is, which is sort of much more, much more powerful. I think you lose a little bit distance wise because you, you you can't quite see the body language in the same way as if you sat in the room. Um, but hey, that's just the world we're living in when we're all we're all suffering from that. It's not quite the same speaking to you via, via this than if we were sat in a room. But that's just that's just the way it goes, isn't it? No, look, I mean, I think in some senses this has been good because it's gotten everyone to the same level. 
Um, and now, now everyone's comfortable to the point that they can all jump on a, a Zoom or a Teams or whatever your platform of choice is uh, and save on, you know, five hours of commuting time, um, which is really the biggest benefit, I think, to a large extent. Um, is it saving the time? Um, but in the same token, you know, you've got people that that wouldn't have taken a job somewhere because it was it was far away from where they were. Now they can take that job, and that business can benefit from skills that potentially they wouldn't have got locally, uh, which I think is a, is, a, is a benefit. Yeah, yeah, the market's really opened up, hasn't it, for uh, finding people, as you say, from across the world. And as long as you can get the time zones to work, it, it doesn't matter so much where you are. Um, and it's it's uh, it's it's building greater um, sort of greater opportunities for the best individuals and, and great opportunities for businesses to to have that open-minded uh, view to 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 bringing in people from from anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So so in our notes we had a thing to discuss psychology of uncertainty. Mm. I think this is a good opportunity to bring that in because I think we're all a little uncertain in the future. I mean, what are your your thoughts in that space? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I'm a I'm a biochemist originally, so I've got a, a real interest in in science. So I tend to, to to like looking at some of the science behind behind bits and pieces. Um, and I think what's really interesting about uncertainty when you understand how your brain works. So as hunter gatherers, you know, uncertainty was something that was uh, that that drives fear and anxiety, uh, and it was designed to to protect us. Now that works when you're a hunter gatherer. Yeah. But it doesn't particularly work in a business world where you have to face into that uncertainty. So what happens in your brain is, and I've done this in, in, in testing, the more uncertain situations you put in front of people, then you can detect that the brain switches from that rational side into the, the limbic system, the emotional side, which is where your fear and anxiety sit. So it's no surprise that in uncertainty, the vast, vast, vast majority brain switches into this fear and anxiety mode because that's what it's designed to do. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that our brain does, which which doesn't help us, is that it's rewarded by certainty. It, it loves the feel-good factor of certainty. So the, the problem with uncertainty, and you, you've seen this in businesses, I've talked to a lot of people who've seen the same things, is, is that it drives um, things like stasis. So people just just wait for something to happen. Yeah. They go into analysis paralysis, let's get some more data. Um, or you can end up with some very rational decisions in extreme uncertainty where actually uh, the behavior is, is is very knee-jerk and irrational. Or you get things like groupthink where it's all about let's let's just focus on what we know between us and let's just take all the risk out, which of course you can't do, and you end up with the lowest common denominator of a solution that sometimes isn't even the solution to the problem that you started with. Um, and that's all linked to this uncertainty that um, our brains uh, don't really help us to manage uncertainty particularly well naturally. So recognizing it and finding ways to to then tackle that is, is really important, particularly at, at this time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I was talking to my brother this morning about conspiracy theories, <laughs> which I think is pretty common in most conversations when you talk about COVID. I mean, this, you know, you think about some, some very, whether these are conspiracy theories or not, I mean, this is one great way to get the world to use less cash because you've got everyone using contacts, you know, and, and payment of cards, et cetera. You know, it's another way for people to improve their hygiene at a global scale. I mean, it, you know, it, everyone wearing masks, it's, it's actually a good thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, I mean, depending on what your view is. Um, but there's, there's obviously people that, that find comfort in, in finding a conspiracy theory that works for them. And then the, the nice thing about conspiracy theory is it only has to be partly true, not completely true. Um, and, it, and it is, I think, I think it is people's brains or, or them trying to cope with not knowing what 2021 is going to be like. I mean, some people think that 2021 will magically mean everything will be fine because it's the end of 2020. Um, but we all know that this is a, one of these things just takes as long as it takes and so be it. Um, the, the reason why I was sort of going down that route is that you, you mentioned sort of groupthink and, and, I, and I was chatting with someone else about it and they were going down the same route as someone else that I knew and I was thinking these are the guys that are very smart people, very, you know, very successful, but they're almost, in order to cope with not knowing what next year, what the future will bring, they've started buying into stories that resonate with, with what they wanted to believe and, it, and it's, yeah. you sort of looking at them going, either I'm the one that's, that's a little bit crazy because I'm not believing that or 
they're a bit crazy because they all believe in that just to get through the day. Um, yeah, it's, that, that comes from that pull of, you know, because what happens, because 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 your brain actually wants gets that reward from that feel-good factor, it focuses on things that make it feel comfortable. It focuses on things that it understands. It focuses, focuses on patterns of the past. Um, and the disruption of what's going on in the world today for for your natural brain then you're pushing that away and you're seeking certainty in what you do know which then brings you down into this sort of um risk-free world <laughs> which of course isn't risk-free and, and and becomes smaller and smaller and you can see that in you know you can see that in businesses who are busy but not moving forward and you mm. kind of know that's you know the, 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 there are some businesses who are taking advantage of the of the good on them uh there are businesses who are uh in this de-risk situation and they're not moving forward they might be really busy but they're not moving forward and uh their some of their competitors may well be moving forward and as this all starts to unfold standing still as we all know in any business doesn't work um but it's hard to fight against that need for certainty in order to move forward and that's why we struggle so much yeah, and it's, it's funny you, you bring that up that way because, uh, you know, there's these conversations that I've been having and colleagues have been having with, with businesses with work that they need to do. And they're not they're not doing the work because they're sort of in this, this sort of stagnant, well, let's hold and see. Um, and then you hear in other conversations where, where businesses are going at, at a rapid rate to make changes. They, they're building new things, whatever, you know, whether it's buildings or, or new software. Um and you, and you sort of go, you've got this dichotomy and you go, why, why is it one way, why is it the other way? And I think it comes down to people's ability to uh, absorb risk um, or be comfortable with that there's a risk of what they're doing, but better to do something than nothing, which I think will mean that some companies will shut down, unfortunately, I think. It's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I remember many, many years ago, and I've had a few examples of this, is that the decision to do nothing is a decision. And... Yep. And I've had to say that to, to some leadership teams because it's very easy to think that doing nothing means you've not made a decision. Well, you have. You've made a decision to do nothing, and there's a consequence of doing nothing. It might be. That's not saying it's the wrong thing, but it is an active decision to do nothing, um, and uh, that's that's. It's hard to fight against, but. But actually making that point clear sometimes to people is, um, from my experience, is a bit of an eye opener for them. Yeah, that you're totally right. Um, one of the things sorry, I wanted to come back to the, uh, the agility and, and one of the things you had here with McKinsey and Company mm. was the five operating models. Um, so strategy, structure, process, people, and technologies. I've, I've only really, I mean, I know about the first two, but I've only really ever looked at the triangle in the sense of process, people, and technology. Mm-hmm. How does the, the structure and, and strategy apply nowadays, do you think? I think strategy, it comes back to that, you know, you, you do need that purpose, that North Star. I mean, North Star is a bit of an over overrated term, bits of terminology. It's not my favorite, but um, people tend to understand it. So, you know, why are you in business and where are you, where are you going? That strategy needs to be something that is tangible, is easily understood, is externally focused, not internally focused. Um, and, and gives you your purpose and that you can align your organization behind. Um, and your structure, it's things like being able to be to be flexible because in order to respond to uncertainty, then you need to be flexible to adjust your resourcing levels, your skill sets. You need to be able to pull virtual teams together. So it moves you away from this really static structure of solid reporting lines into a world where you've got the you know the very typical agile cross-functional teams mm. that that actually are not fixed you know you, people can sit in more than one team you can uh, dissolve teams and set up new teams so i think those are the two things that um in strategy and structure that that really come through in the uh, for me in business agility and, and that's that links to what mckinsey are talking about yeah because I, I, I saw this in another um practical implementation which was the u.s military oh, yeah. where, they, where they changed their structure of, i mean it was very hierarchical probably still is but they changed their format to be because of the. I think it was in Afghanistan. Um, the the enemy in that case was not structured and slow. 
it was it was small and nimble and they had to change as well and they set up basically an agile implementation across all their um various branches um it's a it's a book um team of teams if you've read it i'm not sure i haven't read it but i have heard about it and i think uh, and i think that you know there's a lot to be learned from the military situation the more people that i speak to um with military backgrounds or or people like yourself having these conversations you realize that there's some very innovative stuff happened in in the military sector um so i'm that's on my it's on my list to read that yeah it's it's a pretty good um uh, it's been a while since I've read it, but as you were talking, I was thinking about that's you know they went from having the sort of chain of command going up and down to to give commands to having an hour and a half call every day, which everyone joined and you know from that call it was very you know, very similar to having a scrum call, but obviously a lot longer. Um, the breakout sessions would happen that needed to happen, and they would circle back and and they would carry on with, with the, and the decisions were made a lot quicker. Uh, as opposed to you know slow moving, which was the biggest the biggest thing out of it for me. Yeah, and also the decisions are made more, but because it's it's it is very it's very similar to a business. The closer that you've actually got decision making to the front line, whether that be the front line literally in military terms, or whether that be the the the, the customer then the more relevant those decisions are going to be. The further back you get in an organization of a hierarchy, then the connection with the customer frontline is is distant. And uh, so it's a really good parallel of business and military, actually. You can can use the same terminology of frontline, can't you? You can. No, you can. Look, there's some discussions where it felt like you're in war. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I remember going into uh, a couple of tenders and you walk in for your, your, your presentation and you're walking past your competitor yeah. and uh, a friend of mine tells a story um how he did his presentation and, and what he did is he in the room he put an x on the on the floor and then anytime he had something negative to say he stood on the x mm-hmm. and then the rest of the time he would you know anything positive he'd sit on the other side of the room and he would do his demo and all the rest of it and then when the next guys came in they thought the x was where they're supposed to stand <laughs> so everything they said was negative well, construed as negative, and I mean, I think they won the deal, but I, I just thought that is it's not necessarily war, war, but it's you know, it's a good tactic, it's a good strategy to play. Well, that's brilliant, that is brilliant. I've not heard that is hilarious, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's, it's a goodie. <laughs> so, um, you, you put another diagram here, which is the, the business agility. Uh, which is from Minsberg, Johnson and Scholes in 1988. I, I don't really, I, I understand it at face but maybe you want to talk me through that one. Yeah, I, I love this. I came across it again uh, recently. Um, and when you think how old it is, you know, it's it's quite incredible. Uh, what you what you see is that the environment goes goes ever upwards and business strategy moves further and further away from it because it, the pace of change of business strategy over time tends to not keep up with the environment. And when you went where we are now, there's there's four phases to it. And where we are now is is uh, is the flux phase where you've got high uncertainty, where the, where the environment is rocketing uh, ever upwards. And a lot of businesses are active going around the loop. So you've got this sort of horizontal line of the business yeah. it's difficult to describe when this when, when this is a visual thing uh, and then you've got the environment moving further away from it. so the gap the strategic drift between the strategy of business of a business and the environment gets bigger and at that point you you're at the you're heading to phase four and phase four unfortunately is either demise yeah. because you don't change and you just head off a cliff uh, or you choose to transform, and therefore you bring yourself back closer to the environment. And the you know the thing that's important about that is it's about getting back closer to the environment. So it comes back to what's what's going on in the world, what's happening with customers, what's their needs, what's their problems. Our priorities as consumers has changed. Um, we've seen probably an acceleration of of lots of tech aspects of probably five years. You know, working at home, the technology we're using, for example, just just for two, people are saying that's probably a five year acceleration point through through COVID. And yeah. there'll be loads and loads of other examples. So if businesses are taking advantage of that, then they can transform and they'll win customers. Yeah. If businesses are standing still um, and being very busy then the environment's gone the environment's just too far away you know arcadia last week is a is a classic example unfortunately of, of a business that or a set of businesses that 
you know the leadership style um, is is out of out of favour in the world today, um, and they were very stuck in retail premises and a very low digital footprint, um, and and that just doesn't work. Um, I mean, Primark have sort of broke, broken the back of uh, of things because because they've got a slightly different business model, so they haven't been haven't gone to a digital space. But even they're looking at that now. Yeah. Um, so not adapting your business model to the environment just ultimately will end in failure. It's yeah. just a matter of time. But people yeah. stick to stick to what they know. They stick to business models that worked before. You know. Kodak, Blockbusters, you know, we we know them all. Woolworths, now Arcadia. We, you know, it's really it's really obvious um, when when brands actually and businesses don't don't move with the times. And you've got others that continually reinvent themselves. I mean, IBM's great, great example. IBM used to just be a, a you know a PC manufacturer, mm. and then then competitors came in, were undercutting them. IBM were really slow to innovate, couldn't, you know, couldn't match the prices of the, the new competitors. So they completely reinvented themselves in terms of a business services and enterprise server um, yeah. provider. And look at them now. You know, it's a brave thing to do to actually switch switch your switch your route. But if they hadn't, that that, that business would not have stayed, stayed, stayed around. It wasn't going to compete in PC. So it just changed its business model. That's where you bring yourself back. To the yeah. environment and find something that's relevant to, to the environment today. No, well, I mean, in, in comparison, I would look at Microsoft um, and Obama was going one direction, um, and then Nadella has gone a different direction. I mean, I would probably argue that Obama did a lot of the, the groundwork for that to happen. You know, you look where Azure is and, and that sort of stuff. I mean, that 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 wasn't all Nadella. But if you look at how they are no longer reliant on the Windows operating system for their revenue. Um, you know, that's a huge shift. And they've also become much more of an integrated play, which traditionally was where OpenText used to play. They used to be the guys that were, the, were in between SAP and Oracle and, and Microsoft. Um, now Microsoft is pretty open. Um, and you, you find it very hard to to not use a Microsoft product one way or another. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of my frustrations at the moment is, that, is I find Windows 10 really bad. Um, but I, and I'm exploring a Linux option at the moment, but I can't find stuff that I need to use, and and I'm feeling unfortunately, but stuck with with, with Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, going fully Mac, which may happen. Um, but I wanted to sorry. The other thing I wanted to say before I forget was the example you gave around around companies transforming or or, or falling apart and, and going into demise. You know, I look at the local pub, and and after the first lockdown. Uh, and going out to you know to eat in a restaurant, or how many of them went and found a mobile solution so that you could order, and and they could deliver on takeaways and the rest of it, so they had a backup plan, and how many didn't do it, mm-hmm. and all the ones that didn't take that opportunity for whatever reason, they probably had you know financial constraints or whatever it is, they they are not surviving the second lockdown, which is the sad part, and and that's. I mean, it's a very simple example, but it affects, you know, very much the UK culture. You know, everyone likes to go to a pub and have a beer and have a burger. Um, and I've watched in our neighbourhood, you know, two good pubs. One of them stayed and one of them's gone. Um, I mean, it'll be used by somebody else. You know, we're going to lose the pub, but the but the owner obviously missed the opportunity to pull it. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's it, it is tough. I mean, a lot of a lot of pubs and uh, particularly independent pubs and and independent restaurants, then you know that's it, it might be financial, it might be experience. Um, you've got the whole thing about uncertainty, and actually, yeah. we'll just wait until it's all over because it won't be long. We'll be fine. All those things combine, and as you say, it's it's really sad to see. Um, you know, there are some great examples of, of sort of restaurants and pubs finding different ways to to at least survive. Um, but it's 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 tough. But certainly certainly doing nothing is not is not an option because this is this is not as you were saying earlier, this is not gonna go away quickly. And, you know, the, the time is time has proved time has proven that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean we we're looking at um, at the numbers this morning. And I can't remember what the UK numbers were, but we were looking at in South Africa because we're going back there for a couple of months. Um, you know, you get to see how even in a place where where they've they've almost gone back to normal, kept barring washing your hands and wearing a mask, they're still having a couple hundred cases a day. Now, I know if not if everyone's not lethal, but that's still the, the virus is still there. 
still permeating. It can't seem to get rid of it. Mm. Uh, so you can only believe it's going to be a cyclical problem as opposed to a, an end, having an end date, which feeds that uncertainty again. It does. It does. You had another diagram which I really liked, which is the triangle and the circle. So the, from organization as machines to organizations as organisms. Yeah. And, and I yeah. think that's... Yeah, that, I mean, that, it's it's McKinsey, and uh, I'd have to say I do like some of the McKinsey articles. I think that I think they are very well written. They don't they don't pay me for for quoting them, but I just I just find them <laughs> I find them really well written, well researched, um, because they've got access to so many companies, um, and it, it's it's a great diagram with with showing the hierarchy of leadership where you know, the, the CEO or whoever it is sits at the top of an organization and the structure lays out un, un, underneath and things go up and down the line and get Chinese whispers on the way down and Chinese whispers on the way up. Um, and the customer is actually never to, never to be seen in the whole equation. Mm. And, and, and that's that's how businesses uh, were run and how the military was, was, was run uh, for many, many years. And we are st- seeing more of a change uh, in recent times of uh, of these of this sort of approach as an organism and again being a scientist maybe the word organism uh, sort of really really sort of piques my interest but that fluidity that that sort of uh, you know when you actually get into a culture where you're empowering people to make decisions you're empowering people to actually take some risks um where you're actually supporting people and if things don't work out the first time then actually you've learned from it rather than it being that blame culture where yeah, you've you've put something out in the market and it hasn't done what we want to do. It's actually okay. We've learned something. So what have we learned? How do we use that information to to do differently? And it's about knowledge sharing. You know, actually having those cross-functional teams to solve problems together. You know, having tech and non-tech people in a room together is so powerful. I, I remember, you know, about about nine months ago, kicking off the start of a, of a new product development, um, and the, the workshop made sure that we had people from across the business. So we had finance in there, we had compliance in there. Most people leave compliance to the end and then wonder why compliance won't sign anything off. Uh, You know, uh, people from the retail team, people from marketing, people from product, people from across the tech team. So you're using that knowledge to help build solutions. You're using that knowledge to help solve problems and you're all equal. Uh, you know, it's as I was watching First Night last night um, with uh, Sean Connery, which just because it was a late, lazy Sunday night film, Richard yeah. Gere and Sean Connery. And it's just, you know, when you see that round table and you see all the nights at the round table, how everyone's equal, it just made me think last night that that represents that McKinsey model. It's it's actually you have a you have a team where everyone is equal sat around the table. Um, and I wondered why more businesses don't have round tables in their meeting rooms rather than the, the square and oblong ones. I think it'd be great to actually walk into a business and see that the boardroom actually had a, a round table in it. Yeah, it's, it's um, now that you mentioned, I hadn't thought about it. You probably find all these things, all these lessons we're learning now have always been there. We just, yeah. we've, we've, we've complicated our lives by um, all these things. I mean, the, this hierarchical thing, I think, goes back to um oh the guy who who oh, i'm reading a book called the lean lean startup i think it is he mentioned it as well um back, and this goes back to the factory mentality and, and and how you need to be efficient and effective and this is probably what what where the problems come in you know having having eight hour work days five days a week as opposed to uh getting stuff done based on people being contrib- contributors and and accountable for what they said they do um kind of the guy's name I'll, I'll try to find it but but it is exactly that problem is that we we've almost retrofitted a very hierarchical structure onto everything made everything so complicated and i think it makes businesses very difficult you know almost a, there's a certain tipping point where the business no longer, longer becomes about the customer the people employed are there to maintain the business bureaucracy and red tape mm-hmm. um you know so you get these massive organizations 100,000 people 50 150,000 people whatever it is and a good majority of those are just keeping the business going not actually solving any problems. And then yeah. they're solving problems internally, which, you know, probably aren't that worthwhile to have all those people for in the first place. I'll find the name of that that that, that um, management consultant because I think it wasn't Ed I think it was a consultant who wrote the stuff up for Henry Ford. Um, 
<laughs> hey, they get everywhere consultants. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. But I, I, you know, this organism. I mean, I think it is, it is a very smart way to put it because you can have a very healthy organ, a healthy team, which is a healthy organism, and you can have a, a cancer team, which which is destroys everything. And that's probably where these things fail. Yeah. Uh, unbalanced team. Yeah. I mean, you still need, you know, you need that common purpose. So everyone has to understand what the common purpose of the business is and the purpose of that, that, uh, that cross-functional team that is aligned to that. And you still need the same measures. You know, yeah. it's not, it's not a, it's not a free for all where you're just letting people go and do what they want, but you're measuring, you're, you're measuring things um, in a way that is aligned to the purpose. People understand the measures they're accountable for those measures, but they're accountable for learning to improve to improve the outcomes. Yeah. Um, whether they be, you know, customer people, you know, financial, and having that balance balance view and and accepting that putting something out in the marketplace the first time you you you, you launch your your MVP, then it's it's not meant to be perfect. It's not meant to work in a way that actually drives millions of pounds of money. It's it's there to actually put it into the real world, take it out of the research testing environment, put it into the real world, and keep learning from it. You know, it's not a it's not a phase one, it's not a final product. It's a mm. the first version that's actually going into the real world, and we'll keep learning and keep learning and keep learning. But we know the measures that we're trying to to, uh, to you know we're monitoring it, we're looking at the data, we understand the outcomes we're trying to drive, we're improving those outcomes over time. We'll do some things that'll take us backwards. You know, sometimes you, you change something, think that it's going to, going to do a positive and actually it doesn't. Or you do an A-B test and find that actually it makes no difference. But you've learned something. Mm. I mean, my my, fav- my absolute favourite scientist is uh, Brian Cox. Yeah. Uh, and his the quote of his I love is, the essence of science is to be delighted to be wrong because every time you're wrong, you learn something. Yeah. Nice. I think if we apply that more in a in a business world, then I think actually we would we would get a lot further because people will be prepared to test things and try things and learn from it rather than be afraid to fail because that just that just um, inhibits curiosity, inhibits creativity if you're afraid to fail. And right now we need we need that more than ever because we need to innovate in, uh, our way out of this in a collaborative way. Yeah, and I think you're. I mean, if you look at it from a political point of view, and this is one of the problems we have in in, in our society is that people people feel like they can't fail. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the, I don't know who ever made this up, but the acronym "fail" is is first attempt in learning. Um, if we actually let it be that way, that you didn't, maybe it's a screening system, maybe I don't know. We we almost feel like you always have to be right, you always have to be successful, you always have to be, you know, on top of things. Um, otherwise, you're being judged. Negatively, yeah. yeah. You know, there's a need to get away from that. There is. Uh, I think. I think there would be a lot more. I mean, you just look at, at the average politician. No one trusts what they say because because everything they say is is not authentic usually, because they have to be right and they have to have a plan. But maybe if they admitted that actually we don't have a plan and we're making something to go along, but we're using science to make it up and and it's going to change every day. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, I think the recent the recent sort of uh, months have really shown that. I mean, politics aside, you know, it's it's impossible for anyone to predict what was going to happen. It's impossible for people to predict when lockdowns are going to end, because you don't know you don't know what people's behaviour is going to be. You don't know what the virus is going to do. You don't know when the vaccine is going to come out. You don't know what other treatments are going to be. You don't know what else is going to be driving NHS. You, you can't see into the future and expect anyone whatever side of the political fence you sit on to yeah. go right this is the plan for the next six months we know exactly what we're going to be doing through every situation and every tier and every blah blah blah, blah. you just can't mm. it's, it's 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 an unknown in in a way it's a re- it's a it's an example of where agility is most important yeah you know because you're learning all the time and some things we've done as a nation, whatever nation you're in, will have driven some benefits and some some negatives. Um, but actually, you've learned from it. Yeah. You can see that in the in the change in the way they've done the tiers this time. They've learned from it. I'm not saying it's right, but they're just keeping adapting. And every country around the world is doing is doing its own version of of test and learn. And that's agile. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a two-year project where you can lay out all your milestones and go, right, as long as we hit our milestones, we'll be fine. 
But I, I think that's the, that's the funny thing is that it, it, whether they're doing it by design or not, whether they're, they're trying to do an, an agile approach or not, yeah. I think that's exactly the issue they're having is that they're trying to run it. It's becoming an agile project, but they haven't got the vision really clear mm. um, and they're not managing expectations very well. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> And people want certainty. So the whole thing is really, really difficult. That's where we're all tearing our hair out. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, I suppose we, as you say, we can't predict the future, but if we knew that, um, for example, if we knew that lockdowns were going to be a common thing, uh, and we just sort of made a part of our, part of our operating model. Yeah. And, and we, we talked about that being the future and, and look, you know, schools will be different, work's going to be different. So, you know, there's no, there's no going back to normal. There, there is, and there's also no new normal. It's just what it is. Yeah. Maybe it would be a little bit less anxiety. And you also, if you didn't have the TV with the news every day, making it sound like, you know, every day's Armageddon. <laughs> yeah, I've stopped, I've stopped, I've stopped watching the news now. I have to say, I, I catch the headlines, but, um, but yeah, I'm just trying to. Uh, Trying to just get get on with life as best as best you can, and there's loads of positives to come out of the situation. Uh, you know, there's some horrible situations, but there are some positives. Yeah. Um, and actually being able to focus on those, as long as you, as long as your family and families and friends are safe and well, then then actually there are lots of positives to to look out onto. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, look, I'll be honest. I think I think there are going to be people, unfortunately, where you're going to have someone that's going to get it, and and they they, they may not survive and. But that's that almost. I, I, I'm always worried about it being a stigma. Yeah. Um, and I'm worried about, as I say, people using this as, as an opportunity to get, get on, a, on a conspiracy theory bandwagon. Um, I think we should look at the benefits, like you say. Benefits are people are spending more time with their families, more time with their kids, which they wouldn't have been spending. I mean, we have, we've had a newborn; she's three months old. If if this was not a pandemic, I would have probably been back at in an office four days a week, five days a week. Um, now I'm carrying it on my chest most of the day. <laughs> Almost reverse Now I'm the one carrying this big weight on the, on the front of my stomach. Yeah, well, you've got to, it's got to be your turn at some point, Ryan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You're <laughs> um, coming up on time. Is there anything else you want to cover? No, that was that was really good. I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much, Ryan. Yes, it was great to have you on. Where can people look you up if they want to get in contact? Find me on LinkedIn. So it's J-A-C-Q-U-I and then Rigby, R-I-G-B-Y. Best way to do it. Come and find me on LinkedIn. Great. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you. Super. Thank you very much. Well, then uh, without further ado, we're done. Great. Thank you. Cool. We'll keep in touch. Yes. Cheers, Ryan. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.